Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Paul Chappelle. Paul graduated from West Point in 2002 and was deployed to Baghdad. He rose to the rank of captain, and he left active duty in November of 2009. He's the author of four books, and he lectures throughout the country and internationally, teaching college courses and workshops on peace leadership. He serves as the Peace Leadership Director for the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, whose mission is to educate and advocate for peace in a world free of nuclear weapons and to empower peace leaders. As someone who is a quarter black, quarter white, and half Korean, Paul grew up in Alabama. His father fought in the Korean and Vietnam Wars, and Paul sees himself as living proof that nonviolent struggles such as the civil rights movement can create positive change. And he has dedicated his life to unlocking the full potential of strategic nonviolence. Paul's latest book is called The Art of Waging Peace, a strategic approach to improving our lives and the world. Paul, it is a great honor to welcome you. Oh, thank you for having me, Miriam. I really appreciate it. Paul, you say that West Point and the Army trained you how to be a peace advocate. That does sound a bit strange. Now, how did this come about? Well, one thing I learned at West Point and in the Army is how so many of the skills that we need for waging war, we also need for waging peace. Skills such as skills and ideals such as discipline, courage, strategic thinking, camaraderie, planning, and a lot of the skills that West Point empowered me with, you can also see in the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement and Gandhi's movement. And I saw how even though there are significant differences between waging war and waging peace, there are also similarities in how we go about waging those struggles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think your title, The Art of Waging Peace, is brilliant, and I hope it becomes as much of a classic as that ancient Chinese military treatise, The Art of War by Sun Tzu, which you quote liberally in your book. Actually, I found your book quite an education on many, many levels. Um, Let's start with the personal level. you had a really challenging time growing up in the South. You were bullied, uh, you, you were beaten, and you weren't able to trust anyone until you joined the Army. I thought you drew a very interesting parallel between the support you found in the Army environment and why young people may be drawn into joining gangs. Yeah, people, human beings, part of our nature is searching for trust, searching for belonging, searching for acknowledgement and social interaction. We're social creatures, and social interaction, cooperation, these things require trust. And this is one reason why betrayal, being betrayed, is one of the most devastating human experiences. When somebody, when somebody betrays you, I mean, there are people who would rather die than be betrayed by those closest to them. And when people grow up in an abusive background and they don't have a strong family structure, they don't have belonging, they don't have role models or mentors. And if they've suffered physical violence in a gang, you get community, you get people to interact with, you get the sense that these people will possibly die for you or kill for you. And I found reasons of myself joining the military 
looking for trust, looking for camaraderie, looking for meaning, looking for purpose, looking for belonging. And these are, again, I want to take it to a broader level. These are universal human needs, belonging, purpose, meaning, community. And the military provides a strong sense of that through the mission, through the camaraderie, through the cooperation, and through other things the military has. Mm -hmm. You know, there was just in the news this past week the story of a um, a veteran who shot two other vets who were trying to help him deal with his PTSD. And one of the things that your book refers to is the labyrinth of trauma. And you say that we must remove the, the, the societal taboos about discussing violent behavior, whether the violent behavior stems from an abusive upbringing or, or whether it's the, the result of, of the, the trauma of war and particularly the, the returning vets. Um, the, the, the trauma of war is something that we need to discuss. And I think you, you, brilliantly portray it because you're still suffering from it, aren't you? Yeah, I think one of the misunderstood problems in our culture is trauma, especially childhood trauma, and how that can really affect people's behavior as an adult. And a lot of people aren't even aware of how their behavior is influenced by trauma. But when you look at things like really damaging, harmful addictions and violent behavior and spousal abuse and, and all these different kinds of things. A lot of these things do result from some sort of trauma. And getting rid of the taboo in the sense of when somebody gets malaria, nobody says, oh, that's just human nature. Or when somebody gets cancer or HIV, nobody says, oh, that's just human nature. But when people become violent, people go, oh, that's just human nature, not thinking that there could be a cause. Trauma, bullying, abuse, conditioning. If you look at the violent criminal population, the vast majority of people in the violent criminal population were abused as children. And there is a direct correlation between a violent upbringing, a traumatic upbringing, and the possibility, increased likelihood of committing violent crime. For example, if somebody's father beats up their mother, that does not at all mean that person will do that because that person could break the cycle. But that person is at higher risk. And if that person isn't introspective and self-aware and doesn't make some sort of effort to, to break that pattern, that person could easily fall back into that cycle. And so it's understanding violent behavior as an illness. It has a cause, and we can understand that cause, and we can work to prevent that and make our culture and world more peaceful. One of the biggest elements that you refer to as triggering, perhaps, violent responses is a feeling of disrespect. And I think that this is really at the core, not only at the societal level, but also at the national level. Tell us about uh, why they're so central to... Uh, to violence and to peace. So one thing I talk about in the book is I say how I've trained martial arts for many years, and one thing martial arts teaches you to, is to always respect everybody, including your opponent. Martial arts teaches you to always respect everybody, including your opponent. And the reason martial arts teaches that is the vast majority of human conflict comes from people just feeling disrespected. If you think about the times in your life when you were most angry at somebody, it was probably because you felt disrespected. So if you go through life respecting everybody, 
respecting people as human beings, respecting their humanity, you dramatically reduce the amount of conflict in your life. And you also greatly improve your ability to resolve conflict when conflict does arise. And so much conflict is caused by disrespect. And another great problem is that when conflicts do arise, the disrespect that we give to other people makes it so much more difficult to resolve that conflict and to heal and to create some sort of reconciliation because during the conflict we've been disrespectful, we've become hateful, we've said things we didn't, didn't mean to say or things we can't take back. And if we learn how to convey respect, this is one of the peace leadership skills that I teach is how you maximize the respect you give to other people. This is one of the essential peacemaking skills and also life skills that we can use in our lives. And probably the core element in showing respect is actually listening to the other person, would you say? Right. One thing I say in the book is I say in all of human history, in all of human history, I don't think anyone has ever seriously said, I hate it when people listen to me. I can't stand it when people listen to me. Nobody says, oh, me and my spouse have to go to marriage counseling. The problem is my spouse listens to me all the time, and I, I just can't deal with it. Or my new boss is the worst boss I've ever had. He's always listening to me. Everybody likes to be listened to. I mean, everybody likes that as a human being. And listening is one of the most powerful ways to convey respect. And not listening is often a cause of disrespect. And through listening, that is how we develop empathy. Because if we don't have empathy for people, we can't really hear what they're saying. If we have empathy, if we don't have empathy, we can't. We can hear their words, but we can't really hear their emotions or their fears or their hopes or their humanity. So, at the foundation of true listening is empathy. And if we were to develop this skill of empathy and listening, it would just dramatically improve our ability not just to wage peace on a national, international level, but also just have better human relationships interact better with our coworkers, and just dramatically improve our ability to resolve conflict in our daily lives as well. I think you just have to look at the example of most of the political talk shows on television today to have a glaring example of people not listening to other people. You know, they're just kind of biding their time until they can leap in with their own point of view and seem not to listen at all and not to have any empathy at all. What do you think is at the core of empathy? How do you develop empathy? Particularly for somebody you don't really particularly like. You, you grew up, you know, you, you said that the army, uh, growing up with conservatives in the South, um, helped you develop empathy. Tell us how that worked. So I think at the core of developing empathy is understanding our shared humanity. What do we have in common as human beings? And what do living creatures have in common? So I, I, when I talk about the military and gangs, the military in many ways is very different from gangs, extremely different. The military has a code of ethics that people are supposed to uphold. It has a sense of professionalism that people are supposed to uphold. But when I talk about gangs in the military in this loose correlation. I'm talking about the human yearning, the human yearning for the search for trust, the search for belonging, the search for meaning and purpose in community. So the search for trust, purpose, meaning, belonging, community are human yearnings that all people have. It doesn't matter what time period you live in, what culture you live in. Everybody likes to have people they can trust, that they can confide in. They like to feel like they belong to a group of people. They like to feel a sense of community and purpose and meaning. And this unites us. And this same kind of human yearning can draw people to churches, the military, 
activist groups, all sorts of different organizations. And the more we understand our shared humanity, the more we can look at people from different cultures and see underneath those differences. And it doesn't matter what culture you come from. We all want our families to be safe. We all want a meaningful, purpose-driven life. We all want to live in a safe community. We all want belonging. And that is where you begin to see empathy. And now dehumanization becomes much more difficult. It's much harder to dehumanize another group of people as saying, oh, these people are so different from me, when we all have these same human aspirations. Mm-hmm. Yes, you, you make a note in the book that when people are executed, uh, they're generally blindfolded or, or have a hood over their head or shot in the back of the head so that the executor doesn't need to look in their eyes and acknowledge their humanity. I thought that was a very powerful comment. Yeah, um, I mean, the executioners understand very well is you cover the head, you cover the face, it's much easier to kill people. And this is something that the, the Nazis understood. I'm reading a book now called Ordinary Men about how the Nazis realized that when you can see people's faces, it's much harder to kill them. When you can't see their face, it's much easier to kill them. Mm-hmm. Even Gandhi said that he regards himself as a soldier, though a soldier of peace. Um, He was a a medic in the Boer War, wasn't he? Yes, he was. In the Boer War and in the Second Zulu War, he was a medic. So what do you think he meant by regarding himself as a soldier of peace? So I think that he saw the similarities between the soldier and the activist. So when I describe activists, I will use many metaphors. I will refer to activists as artists. I will refer to activists as sculptors or painters or doctors, doctors trying to heal societal illness, trying to heal hatred. But, or I'll even compare activists to musicians. But the critical metaphor that we have to use, we have to compare activists to soldiers. And what Gandhi realized is that a soldier in the military and a nonviolent activist, these are two of the only professions where you have to expect that your fellow human, be- human beings are going to try to kill you. When you become a doctor or you work for Google or you work for Apple, you don't have an expectation that your fellow human beings are going to try to kill you. But when you join the military or you serve in the civil rights movement or the women's rights movement or Gandhi's movement or the Arab Spring, you have to have the expectation that people will try to attack and possibly kill you. And if people don't have that expectation or that warrior mindset to deal with that, they're not going to be able to deal with that kind of pressure. And so Gandhi and King both wanted to use – they both used a lot of military metaphors to get people to think about that risk involved and how nonviolent activism is a very heroic – civil rights movement, for example, is a very heroic, courageous struggle. And the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr. were as courageous and as heroic as, as people might say soldiers in war are. If not more so, because they didn't carry a gun. Exactly. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr., he's getting dozens of death threats a day. People are threatening to kill his wife and his family. His house is bombed, and he doesn't have a gun to fight back with. I mean, that takes real courage. And it's extraordinary what him and Gandhi and other activists have gone through so that we can have the rights that we have today. You know, we hide behind guns. Uh, I think the the gun law debate 
going on in this country is is a uh, case in point. And yet, uh, and, and we hide behind our military, and yet we do not seem to be any closer to a, living in a society of peace, in a, in a world of peace. Uh, why, why does war not actually protect us from our enemies? The reason war is so ineffective today is, is I was watching 60 Minutes, and there was a Marine Lieutenant Colonel in Afghanistan being interviewed on 60 Minutes. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Cabanis. And he said, if you kill a thousand Taliban and two civilians, it's a loss. If you kill a thousand Taliban fighters and two civilians, it's a loss. And the reason he said that is because when you kill civilians in foreign countries, you dramatically increase the amount of hatred and resentment and, and danger to the U.S. population. And if you look at war in the 21st century, if you look at war after World War II, after World War II, the vast majority of people killed in war are civilians. You have wars in the late 20th century and early 21st century, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of civilians are killed. Now, what would happen if a foreign country came to America and killed American civilians? For example, September 11th. Look at how the American population reacted. Or look at the attack in Boston. So we live in this mass media world where when you kill civilians on foreign soil, you will increase hatred. And the nature of war, war is so chaotic, so unpredictable, no matter how hard you try not to kill civilians, you will accidentally kill civilians. And so how can we make our country more safe when we're using a method that increases civilian casualties and increases hatred and the threat of terrorism against the U.S. population? So we have to choose another path that is more effective than the war method for keeping our country safe. You go into the cost of war, not just the human cost, but also the economic cost. I thought uh, you had some fascinating statistics about the aftermath of 9-11. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you said that Osama bin Laden and co. spent maybe a half a million dollars on that event. And the cost to us has been like many trillions of dollars. So in terms of an effective uh, terrorist tactic, that was really right up there. Yeah, the, the, the plan, his plan was to bankrupt us. And that's how he helped defeat the Soviets when they invaded Afghanistan, was through trying to bankrupt their economy. And he said that he spent around half a million dollars on the, on the September 11th attacks. And we've spent trillions of dollars in the aftermath on war, homeland defense. And he said that's going to economically bankrupt us and create all sorts of economic problems and prevent us from solving many of our other problems. And he talked about how he said in this interview that was televised in Al Jazeera and there was a Washington Post translation, he said how in a way him and the Bush administration are working together because the U.S. government wants to maximize profit for certain corporations in the greater Middle East through the war effort, through the opening of war fronts. At the same time, he's trying to bankrupt this. So indirectly, there's kind of this cooperation going on where he's trying to bankrupt us. You have these American corporations who are trying to maximize their profits in these war zones, which is, of course, coming out of the money from the American taxpayer and how 
the economic devastation is, is enormous to the American people. But we first have to show the American people that war doesn't make us safe, because if people believe that war protects their freedom and their family and their children, they will pay any cost. So we have to first show the American people war doesn't make us safe, there's a better alternative, and then we can begin a discussion about the military budget. Otherwise, if we talk about the military budget, people might perceive that as a threat upon their children and their family and their freedom if they believe that war makes them safe. You talk about some alternative uses of the military. Can you go into that? Yeah, I talk about how the U.S. military, I, I, I say that if the purpose of the American military is to protect people around the world, if that is, is its purpose, I mean, that seems easily agreed upon. The purpose of the American people, pardon, the purpose of the American people, pardon, the purpose of the American military is to protect the American people. Mm -hmm. protect the American people, and, and even, in a way, protect people around the world, but specifically protect the American people. The best way to accomplish that in the 21st century is through helping people around the world. So in 2009, the U.S. military performed 154 humanitarian aid missions in 61 countries. So the military has turned into this hybrid killing machine and humanitarian aid natural disaster relief organization. So the Navy's new motto is a global force for good. And when there is a natural disaster or humanitarian crisis, the U.S. military realizes if we help people in that region, and that demonstrates good, it's, that generates good publicity, media publicity, that is a way to reduce resentment for the U.S. and win hearts and minds and further, our, further the positive perception of the American people and in that region. And if we do kill civilians, that's going to create the opposite effect. That's why the military now is trying to not kill civilians, but the nature of war because war is so, so chaotic, no matter how hard you try not to kill civilians, civilians will be killed. Mm. Yes. So, um, what do you think uh, we can do to outsmart violence? So outsmarting violence is a technique I talk about where if the, the age-old question is if you were living in World War II in Germany during the era of the Holocaust and people came to your house asking you for asking you if you knew where any Jews or any people were hidden, would you lie? And in that instance, lying, which I think is that's an extreme example, but that happens all over the world. There's genocides happening maybe as we speak right now. There might be a situation like this happening. But that's one rare instance where it's an alternative to actually using violence, where you can deceive this violent system and try to keep these people safe. And I think this is way down on the ladder. We have all these different techniques we can use that I describe in the, in the book in terms of different lines of defense. And if all those other things don't work, this is another option we have short of actual violence. So let's go back to your invisible shield and your sort of truth. Why don't you just describe this hierarchy that you have? So the first line of defense is what I call the infinite shield. And where I got that phrase from was when I was in the military, I was attending a lecture, and this one military person, he said that he said, Respect is your shield. He said, you've got to think of respect as your shield. And when you're, an army, when you're a leader in the army, no matter how disrespectful people may be to you, especially your subordinates, you can never be disrespectful back. Because when you become disrespectful back, you lose your moral authority. 
And what makes you a leader is your moral authority, your ability to convey respect for people. And the example I would use is imagine if there was a photograph of Martin Luther King Jr. flipping the bird at a bunch of white people. That would have completely destroyed his moral authority and the moral authority of much of the civil rights movement. And there's a reason why people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. or Mother Teresa or Jesus or Buddha stand out in human history. And they're so different from people you see on talk shows. And if Martin Luther King Jr. were to behave in this very disrespectful way, the way you might see on television, he wouldn't have been who he was. He wouldn't have had the impact that he had. So when we convey respect, this is our first line of defense. This is our first way of trying to prevent conflict, and when conflict arises, trying to resolve that conflict. I think you you could probably tie that into what you were just talking about. Um, with uh, killing civilians, um, right. the drone strikes that we've been engaged in, I think, uh, in a sense, show a lack of respect for the populations of these countries because it's like their citizens have less value than our citizens. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. And again, the the best way to help the American people understand this is what would happen if another country did that to us? What would happen if China or France or England flew a plane over our American soil, launched a missile, and killed 20 or 30 American civilians? We would go we would completely lose our minds. I mean, you look at September 11th, you look at the Boston bombings, the amount of outrage. What would happen if a country did that to us repeatedly over and over and over again and felt they had a right to do that? How would we react to that? Mm -hmm. And to understand these problems, we have to be able to... One thing I learned in the military is that in order to think strategically, you have to be able to put yourself in the other person's point of view. And that's something a lot of people don't do today. They don't try to think strategically, but the military taught me, if you want to think strategically, you have to be able to put yourself in their point of view. And how would we react if that was being done to us? And how disrespectful would we think that that is? Killing and isn't that just another term for empathy? Exactly. It's, it's like in The Art of War, written over 2,000 years ago, Sun Tzu in The Art of War said, know your enemy. Mm-hmm. And... The only way to know your enemy when waging peace is through empathy. And when you have empathy for the person, you realize they're not really your enemy, that your real enemy is hatred, ignorance. These things have imprisoned this person's mind. So I think that the only way to truly know the other person is to have empathy. And then at that point, you realize they're not your enemy. And how can you help persuade them and convince them of a different way? And so that brings us to your sword. Yeah, the sword that heals is where the... The infinite shield can be breached. It's a first line of defense, but it can be breached. So it wasn't enough for Martin Luther King Jr. to be respectful. He had to take nonviolent action. He had to do boycotts and protests and sit-ins, and he had to pressure the legal system, and he had to pressure the political system, and they were marching out in the streets. So it wasn't enough for them just to be respectful. That is a great first line of defense, but if that shield is breached, then you have to use your sword. And when you use your sword, you shouldn't drop your shield. You should use both. So even though they were doing boycotts and protests, they were still conveying lots of respect to increase their moral authority against a very unjust system. So it's a way of taking it to the next level. If the first line by itself doesn't work, then you go to the next line of defense, which is the sword that heals, which is a term that Martin Luther King Jr. used. He said that nonviolence is a powerful and just weapon. It is a sword that heals. Mm-hmm. And then you go into deflection, if that doesn't work. Yeah, that's deflection would be social norms, uh, 
laws and outsmarting violence. So if that doesn't work, this is where Martin Luther King Jr. asked Eisenhower to send in the National Guard to uphold the law in Little Rock, Arkansas, when there was a mob threatening to lynch these nine black students trying to go to high school in Little Rock. Where, when I give a talk, I'll talk about how amazed I am, how inspired I am that if any American president today were to say, black people should be slaves, we should put black people back in chains, women shouldn't be able to vote, own property, or go to college, that person would be seen as insane. That would sound completely insane to us today, but 200 years ago, virtually every American politician spoke like that, and most Americans thought like that 200 years ago. 200 years ago, most Americans supported slavery, oppression of women. 200 years ago, women couldn't vote, women couldn't own property, women couldn't go to college. So when I give a talk, and I talk to 50 people, I realize there might be one or two people in the audience who actually think women shouldn't be able to vote. There might be one or two people in the audience who, in the back of their mind, says, well, I wish we could bring back slavery. I wish women couldn't vote their own property. But those one or two people probably aren't going to say it out loud because there's new social norms, and they don't want to be judged or, or condemned. They're not going to say it out loud. For example, in the American workplace today, you aren't going to have someone stand up typically and say, well, black people should be slaves because that person would get fired. So it's a new social norm. Now, there are people who will say it out loud, but they are not going to actually do it because they'll get arrested. So if somebody believes that we should have black people as slaves or women shouldn't be able to vote, and if they say it out loud, if they actually try to do that, the police will come arrest them, and that's the enforcement of law. And then the third is outsmarting violence, which is – I go into more detail about that. But here's another line of defense that's different from waging peace, because with waging peace, you're persuading people. You're changing how people think, but you can't convince everybody. Was every single man in America convinced that women should have the right to vote? There's still men in America who don't think women should have the right to vote. So you have to have these laws in place so that small minority of people who aren't persuaded will, will not hurt other people. So if I speak to an audience of 50 people, and one out of 50 people thinks women shouldn't have the right to vote, that's not a big deal. One out of 50 people, 2%. But when you have 300 million people in the country, 2% of 300 million is many millions of people. So if we don't have laws, then we can have serious problems. Well, now, you know, we do have laws, and sometimes they are uh, upheld, uh, and sometimes they're not upheld. I mean, we, we have the court system, we have the Supreme Court, and people are still... Uh, you know, attacking uh, those defenses, if you will. Um, I don't think uh, many people would disagree that our political system is, if not totally broken, at least seriously cracked and flawed. Uh, our politicians seem to be very strongly beholden to big corporations and the good of the people is not uppermost in their minds uh, because their, their real concern is the, the profits of their shareholders. Um, this is a massive uh, opponent to take on. How would you suggest we go about it? Oh, so you brought up a really good point. I think the big problem now is we might have laws 
but do we really have the rule of law? Are the laws equally applied to everybody? I think most Americans would say that their main concern is that some people seem out above the law. And if you're very rich, if you have a lot of money, maybe you're not as susceptible to the law as someone who's poor. But uh, I think that, I'd like that, to interrupt you there, Paul, sure, sure. and just bring out a point that there was a rider to the farm bill that was just voted down. And this rider was to um, uh, remove the exemption from Monsanto of being liable for any damage caused by genetically modified organisms. So here we have a corporation that is doing its best to maximize its profits to take over agriculture in America and the world. And yet it wants to be held blameless if any of its uh, questionable science proves to bite us in the rear end uh, down the road. And I think there's a lot of suppression of research that is showing that it is causing a great increase in allergies, in autism, in, uh, in all kinds of things, in cancers. Um, so I, 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 I'm sorry, the activist in me just had to make that point. So getting back to how do you um, demand the enforcement of the laws in a just manner across the board for the protection of the people. That's such an excellent point. Again, the problem, there are certain individuals and certain corporations that seem to be above the law. The law doesn't apply to them. They can do things and hurt people in ways that are unjust, and they, can't, they don't seem to be punished for it. And we have to have the equal application of the law in a way that's fair and just. And the way we shape that is through waging peace through nonviolence. So historically, there have been many, many unjust, bad laws. It used to be illegal for black people to ride at the front of the bus. It used to be illegal for black people to eat the same lunch counters as white people. It was illegal for women to vote. Women couldn't own property. Women couldn't go to college. It was illegal for a slave to escape. If you were a slave and you escaped from your slave owner 200 years ago, the police would bring you back to your slave owner. And nonviolence is a way to shape these laws. Nonviolence is a way to oppose and reject unjust laws and create just laws. So there's this very strong dynamic between nonviolence and lawmaking, and we need to have very dedicated activism, very powerful waging peace to shape these laws in a way where these powerful corporations and individuals are no longer above the law, and they don't have more rights than human beings, and that they are also basically upholding, they're also subject to the standards of justice that we expect in our culture. I think if you listen to the political dialogue um, and apply what you were saying about empathetic listening, um, you will find that there actually is quite a large community of interest between liberals and conservatives. It's really a question of identifying it and creating coalitions across the board to push for things that are in the highest public interest. Oh, absolutely. I think one thing I write about is how much common ground there is between liberals and conservatives. And I gave this talk at the University of Kentucky, and 
there was a diverse audience I was speaking with. There were people who were Democrats, Republicans, liberals. There were people in the audience who were in the Tea Party. And I asked the audience, I said, raise your hand if you want our country to be less safe and less, less secure. Nobody raised their hand. Raise your hand if you want terrorism to increase. Raise your hand if you want the American economy to collapse. Raise your hand if you are in favor of corruption. Raise your hand if you want innocent people to die. Raise your hand if you want wasteful government spending. So we have a lot in common. We want the same things, but, but there's so much demonization of both sides. And people in power control people by dividing people divide and conquer. The people in power want liberals and conservatives not to see their common ground and think of each other as enemies, because then it's so much easier to control these people. Because if liberals and conservatives unite around different issues, they're so much more powerful at opposing the injustice in our country today. Mm. You said in your book that you found a surprisingly large um, uh, representation among the military who were in favor of peace and uh, opposed to war. Um, do, do you sense that this um, peace activism movement is is kind of sprouting up all over? Uh, yeah, I think the views are changing. There was a Pew Research study done. There was a Pew Research study done that found that of the post 9/11 veterans. 51% of them think that using too much violence makes terrorism worse. So I think that there's a variety of different viewpoints in the military today. But I think that the idea that killing civilians, waging war, can actually endanger our national security is a growing demographic. According to that Pew Research study, it was 51% who thought that using too much violence makes terrorism worse. There's no telling what it is in the active military. But it is a significant number. And how do we increase that number where... How many percent of people in the military 100 years ago thought that you should have integration, How, that you should have black people serving with white people? Very low, and that number increased. And now the fact that women are serving in more active roles in the military. And I read an article by the director of the Sierra Club, and he said, how do you know when an issue has reached critical mass? He says, how do you know when an issue in America has reached critical mass? He says, you know it when that issue becomes embodied in the military. So he said, for example, right before the Civil Rights Movement, the military desegregated. Right, before, right during the time in the 1970s when women normally couldn't get – the women were just starting to break through that glass ceiling and starting to get jobs they couldn't normally get. The, women, the military let women go to West Point, and the military just thought, got rid of don't ask, don't tell. And the military right now, they're doing this big push to, to solar panels, and they're trying to have these energy-independent, net-zero military bases by 2020. And I tell people I got a lot of my peace views from the military. So I think that there's a transitioning going on, and the question is how do we as the American public further that transition and bring our country to a place where we're much safer and we truly do more to make our, our world a better place for all people? You had a really interesting uh, description of a military report about global warming. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, there was the, the 2009 Army Sustainability Report. The 2009 Army Sustainability Report identified several threats to national security. And these threats included income disparity, severe income inequality, 
because how that creates all sorts of conflicts and problems. Another was poverty, and another was climate change. And those are three of the main concerns of the occupied movement, climate change, severe income disparity, and poverty. And when the military and the occupied movement agree upon something, I think we should probably pay attention. <laughs> and the military is identifying those things that was threats to national security. Climate change, severe income inequality, and poverty endanger national security. And that's an example where the military and the occupied movement have common ground. And now we have to talk about what is the best method to fight climate change, to fight poverty, to fight income inequality. It's hard to do that with bombs. It's really difficult to do that with bombs and missiles. You have to do that through nonviolence and through social justice and activism, just like Martin Luther King Jr. did and Gandhi did and the women's rights movement did. You are an advocate of using international police to target terrorism rather than the military. Why is that? I think that the, the police force, the FBI, that kind of tactic is what's really best designed for the terrorist threat because the terrorist threat is an international criminal network. And the, the police is more, their tactics are more geared toward dealing with a criminal network. And the military, it's more geared toward dealing with a monolithic government or an army. You fight the Nazi army. You fight this, uh, a, a country's army, their air force, their navy. You destroy their war-making capability. And terrorism is more like the mafia than it is like the Soviet Union, and terrorism is an idea, and you can't destroy an idea with violence. And so this would require international police work, how after September 11th, the whole world's sympathy went out to the U.S., and it would require the cooperation of many other countries. But if we didn't have military bases in other countries, if we had this different approach, I think this would be a more effective method because, again, the problem with the use of the military and bombs and missiles, according to the military, is you kill civilians, which creates greater hatred and greater mm -hmm. resentment. Mm -hmm. And the, military, the police can also do that, which is why the, the police force has to be applied very, very, very thoughtfully and, and, and very carefully so that it doesn't also create the same problem. But, and this is, again, you use nonviolence to remove the soil that creates terrorism. You try to remove hatred, you try to remove poverty, you try to remove lack of hope and despair, this soil where terrorism flourishes, but you might still have a few people who, who are going to want to be violent, and then you use police force against those few people after you try to remove the soil of terrorism through nonviolent action. You're so eloquent, Paul, and you're so young. Um, I'm very impressed. Uh, what, what do you think people can do today? Is there one thing that we could do to begin to wage peace? I think the most important thing is training and getting the training. And the workshops I teach and the books I write, especially The Art of Waging Peace, it offers people just the basic tools, the basic techniques. So if somebody were to ask a violinist, what's one thing I can do to play the violin? The violinist would say, you know, get lessons, learn how to play the violin. Or if somebody were to say to a martial artist, what's one thing I can do? The martial artist would say, go to a dojo and get some training. So I think a book or a workshop is a place to begin. And the purpose of the training is to empower people and unlock their creativity. 
So when you take a class on sculpting, when you take a class on painting, when you take a class on filmmaking, it empowers you to be more creative. And then you don't have to ask people, what could I do? Because you know you can sculpt, you know how to paint, you know how to play the violin, or you know the tools to make a film. And so I think it's changing the paradigm. And the most important thing is for people to begin to get some training in nonviolence, which is not just an important skill for making our country and world better, but it's also a very important life skill and set of life skills, and it'll also help us improve our daily lives as well. I think you mentioned this in, in connection with the Occupy movement, that if they had had better training, uh, they would have been more effective. Where do you think they went wrong? Gene Sharp has an interesting critique of the Occupy movement. Gene Sharp, he's a nonviolent theorist, and he talks about their lack of planning, their lack of strategic thinking, their lack of training. I think any movement can benefit, benefit from, from more strategic planning and more training. But I think that they didn't have the same degree of training and planning and strategic thinking that the civil rights movement had. And Martin Luther King Jr. saw the forces we're dealing with now is way more powerful than the forces he was dealing with. Because when he spoke out against the Vietnam War and when he spoke out against poverty, black churches turned on him. The NAACP turned on him. Some of his best friends turned on him. So he saw the war system and our current economic problems is a much more fierce opponent than the segregation system. So we have to take our training to a whole other level. If we don't, these forces are way too powerful. We cannot defeat these forces if we don't maximize our ability to wage peace because the forces are just too powerful for us to not be well trained in what we're doing. Well, how do you get that training? I know you're going around uh, speaking wherever you can. Are, are there uh, training, you know, peacemaking dojos? Yeah, there's, there's peace studies programs, there's, there's nonviolence workshops, and all that is extremely important. And I focus on leadership. I focus on the leadership skills, the persuasion skills. For example, Gene Sharp's Gene Sharp has a great program, but he's focused primarily on how to overthrow a dictatorship. And I really focus on how do you change paradigms of thinking? Mm -hmm. How do you change the idea that women shouldn't be able to vote to the idea that if you don't think women should vote, then you're some sort of what, what's wrong with you? How could you not think that? Or the change in attitude towards segregation, slavery. And we have to have a similar significant shift in attitude toward war, environmental destruction and other problems we're having now where people begin to see those problems the same way we look upon slavery and other issues in the past. And so I think that the Art of Waging Peace sets up a foundation that all different kinds of people can build upon. Because one problem now with the training is there's not much consensus. So try to provide a foundation that can set up and create more training opportunities for people to do as well. Do you have a website where people can find out more about this? Yeah, I have a website, peacefulrevolution.com. Again, my website is peacefulrevolution.com. And I offer workshops, and there's more information on the website, and there's more information about the Nuclear HP Foundation. And I hope people will get more involved. And we need everybody we can get. This is, we need every single person. If people want to feel needed, the world needs them to wage peace. I mean, the world absolutely needs every single person it can get, desperately. 
And so if you want to feel needed, the world needs you probably more than ever in history because the issues we're dealing with now threaten human survival. And I hope as many people as possible will get involved. Well, I hope our listeners heed your words, Paul, because your book was very moving, very enlightening, and I must say somewhat depressing. Um, But the hope, I suppose, is in our own hands, and it's up to us to, to make the new world a reality. So we've been speaking with Paul K. Chappelle, the author of The Art of Waging Peace, A Strategic Approach to Improving Our Lives and the World. Paul, I'm so honored that you were with us today, and I wish you the, the, the greatest Godspeed in your work. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Our guest next week will be Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, one of the producers of the important and award-winning documentary film, Elemental. It tells the story of three individuals on three continents confronting some of the most pressing ecological challenges of our time. Well, if you enjoyed our show, you can download our mobile app and listen to all the interviews from NCR Radio on the go. You'll find the link on our website at ncreview.com. And now we're going to close our show with a track of the week from members of the Positive Music Association. This week, we've got New World by Gary Stoddard from Salt Lake City. Say anything 
Gary Stoddard from his album Life is a River. Gary is a seasoned singer-songwriter, visual artist, and actor with three CDs and four full-length musicals to his credit. He's one of the PMA's growing group of musicians who are using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. To find out more about Gary's music, go to GaryStoddard.com. That's G-A-R-Y-S-T-O-D-D-A-R-D dot com. And to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to PositiveMusicAssociation.com. If you enjoyed our show, I hope you'll friend us on Facebook, which is Facebook.com slash NC Review. It's all about media for enlightened living. And if you love to read and would like to build your library with leading-edge books, often before they're even published, why don't you join our team of reviewers? Just email Julie at reviews at ncreview.com. Well, that's it for our show. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.